Welcome to the Sylvan Australia podcast, where we talk everything rural lifestyle. Welcome to another episode of the Sylvan Australia podcast, and on this episode we're joined by Cam Sutherland. Cam, thanks for joining us. No pleasure to be here. Now Cam, for those that are listening to us, I mean, you you have a decorated record in turf in west in particular western australia and we'll cover a bit about what you've done but tell us how does a from growing up on the broad acre farm in wickerpen how, how did you get involved to where you are now in the turf industry uh i suppose just from like most people growing up in the country love of sport and uh, for me i suppose more specifically cricket and i suppose football was the were the two but um, when we finished school it was going to play cricket in Perth and then um, basically I had stress fractures of the back through uh, a number of reasons but couldn't play cricket one year and got into basic cricket wickets and I was studying horticulture at the time and so yeah, went to the turf management side from there. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, you, you, you went all the way to the Wacker, basically, and, and talk us through some of the experiences that you, you, you had at the Wacker and, you know, and your excellent preparation of the, of the wicket here in WA. Yes, well, I suppose when I got there in 2005, um, they were having some issues with the Wacker around its pace and bounce, and um, one of the, I always remember one of the questions in my interview for the position was why do we think it's not what probably what it was renowned for and what would you do so um, I remember answering that in a simple way around the, the soil structure had changed and that led to the you know I suppose the vitality and the, the ability of the characteristics of the wacker to not be there so um, and I always remember once I answered that that the, the people the CEO and the others that were in the interview panel kind of looked out over the ground and raise their eyebrows so I thought they either agree with it or they don't so um, luckily I suppose they agreed with it in some way shape or form because um, you know I got the role and and also then one of the key things was why were we not having success in, in probably having a traditional whack of wicket and so my early wickets uh, just weren't um, I suppose traditional whacker wickets and that they're quite flat and sides are making 500 in shield games and mm. so we we did a lot of research around the soil properties and the you know going back to the I suppose 40 50 even 60 years previously around what made it you know what were the really good times at the whacker and what was the unique soil characteristic and through an association with the chemistry center we were able to track soil tests from the same testing parameters and therefore be able to match wow. uh, the, the clay soil to those eras and decades and see what was working, what wasn't, and even through when they rebuilt in the 1980s and had a lot of cracking problems, what was the issue with the soil that made it crack and and basically become unmanageable. So, um, and therefore, you know, we obviously presented to the board and, and got the okay to, to reconstruct the block, so which we did over the three seasons and um, yeah it's one of those things that you you probably don't get a lot of opportunity to do but I can say I, I you know rebuilt the basically the Wacker and yeah I think 2010 was really the first one on the new one which is an ashes test and Mitchell Johnson and and Ryan Harris you know ran through England 
twice and it was the only game Australia won on that series, I think. Mm. So yep. which just proved that we were, you know, we were on the right track. We had successful series after that as well. So it mm. was yeah. Had its challenges, but we got there. But that, and that involved sourcing clay from a, a remote area in Western Australia, wasn't it? As well, that was part of it. Yes. Well, the wicket soils um, comes from West Waruna on the Harvey River, so mm-hmm. it just it's almost where the old um, highway meets the new um, road, inland road of the the Forest Highway. I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Yep. So um, yeah, and on the banks of the Harvey River. Well, I don't know how long ago, but probably millions of years ago when the, the, they used to flood, basically, and the sediment packed down of those plains created the unique clays. And mm. um, the better clays are realistically at the bends of the river where it had more, I suppose, overflow in the sharp bends and um, it allowed um, for that more packing of the sediment and then mm. to turn into the you know the silt and the clay properties. So... Um, yeah, and yeah, we did a lot of research down there and spent a lot of time out in paddocks analysing because mm. there's a lot of properties that need to marry up because you're trying to grow grass in a, a really, well, something that's like concrete really when it's prepared, but also yeah. then how do you keep the grass alive and the cracking actually allows air and water to go back and then it swells like a sponge basically and, mm. and basically it's a self-regenerating soil. So, yep. it's, um, But to get it all the physical and chemical properties to align to that is there's probably 10 things we had to look at to 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 get the soil that we really wanted and where we got it from initially was back from where they got it from in the 1970s 60s and Mm. we took the last out of what was a bushland reserve so we were lucky we were able to get permission to do that yeah one of the one of the things that i don't know a lot about cricket myself but i know that when there is a test match or an ashes series or even sheffield shield in town the, the world media certainly focuses on that particular match and the preparation of the wicket. Did you feel that pressure and that, that stress that came with like the world's eyes looking down at the, at the whacker? Yeah, absolutely you do. It's um, The whacker grounds probably, if you go there, it's one of the, probably the poorer grounds for facilities. You're yeah. out in the sun, there's a lot of temporary facilities. It's, you know, but everyone loves the the mystique i suppose the whacker because of the of the 22 yards in the middle um i remember one indian test series i think i did 31 interviews leading up into the into the game and know that but they espn star wanted to go down where we got the soil to just feature article on it they're just they were just um everyone's just so um What's the word I'm looking for? Everyone's just so blown away by, I suppose, the whacker and its uniqueness and how do we get that. And But if you get it wrong, which I have in test matches and shield matches, it's it's a long five days to sit there when you haven't got it right and it's not playing away yeah. because you can't change it and you've got to front up day after day for the five days thinking this isn't playing as well as I want it to. And that happened initially for, for me and that was just the... Um, the real driver into trying to get it right and I would rather and this is what I always said if I walk out the gates or get walked out of the gates then I would rather have done it doing it my way and Mm. finding the uniqueness and trying to get things the way I wanted them to Um, so there's always pressure I mean before the first ball of a test 
uh, match. You were always, um, yeah, very much on edge and you had a lot of media commitments, but yeah, you just really, the more you do, the more settled you get, but yeah, Yeah. certainly there is pressure. Do you think that's come away in, in recent years? Because I've noticed we don't seem to focus too much on the curator. Well, it might be just my, my perception, but it feels like the curator isn't as under much scrutiny in, in recent years. Yes, you're probably right. It's um, Yeah, you certainly probably don't get the media that, you, that you're used to. It's more probably gone back to the players. And, mm. you know, for a while there, there was a lot of talk about cricket and wickets and... Um, the curator's role and um so it's good that it's gone back to mm. just the player it doesn't matter what you're presented with it's the same for both sides yeah just go out and play and if it you know even for a while there if the pitch deteriorated it was like oh the curator hasn't done his job but now they just say the if it deteriorates that's great it makes it more exciting if it's going up and down so mm. you're probably right there yeah one of the things i'm really curious to know is you 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 moved over to horse racing what could you bring with you from from your cricket experiences and and the turf what could you take over to like ascot and belmont that that were because when i look at those two sports i can't see too many parallels where the preparation of the grounds would be would be similar but correct me if i'm wrong no you're not too far wrong but it's it's still around what are you trying to produce so you've still got to look at it from an athlete's perspective. So the athlete just happens to be a horse. Mm. Um, now that horse, if it's going 60 kilometres an hour, which probably is up the straight, um, each um, hoof, I suppose, as it touches the ground, probably has about two tonne of down pressure on it through that, mm. uh, through its, um, through the hoof. And so it has a tremendous shock, I suppose, up through the, the body of the horse. So it's no different to an athlete that whether it be a footballer or cricket or anyone else that that needs that shock absorption so how you manage the grass the cushioning the aeration process of the soil the soil structure um, still gives you the results you're after now i probably ran ascot and belmont shorter than previously but i was after grass density not length now Mm. everyone in the horse racing loves length but if the horse is putting that much down pressure through the grass, it just goes through the grass if it's long and just parts it and basically gets straight in the soil and kicks it out. Where I was looking at really tight, dense grass that would, A, prevent the wearing of the track, mm-hmm. but also that cushioning a bit for the horse. So it would push that grass into the soil and give it a bit of rebound. So, mm. And then we also had a really vigorous aeration program where every every three weeks we'd aerate um, and we used three different machines at different depths which gave different some gave surface aeration some gave um, real subsurface aeration deep down because Ascot can get very hard as a racetrack and then in winter Belmont's rate used for um, winter racing and that drains very well apart from when it's raced on continuously compact so it's just that knowledge of soils and having that ability to adapt so, you know, a lot of people didn't like what I did at the races, but you know, we did um, a lot of work on the subsurface drainage. We did a lot of work on um, you know opening the tracks up, and you know, I think one Kingston Town or Railway Stakes day, we were on a heavy eight after 20 mils. And then we, I think, we had the following year 
Um, I think we had about 60 mils and we were on a soft six. So the result was there that the work mm. we were doing and taking all the organic matter off the top and we did a lot of construction work. And, you know, one year we fell a bit short of having the track ready. But, you know, we were doing taking major works into winter period because that's the only time we had. And, mm. you know, the results the previous following years were there to see. So, you know, sometimes you just got to do the work because you of what you want and it's no different to the whack we replace the get block because we, we wanted an outcome and the same yeah. as at racing we wanted an outcome which was better for racing now it's a bit of pain getting there as it was with the whacker but you know and some of it came after I left where they had really good results and that's what I said to them when I left it's just like you're going to see some really good tracks and mm. that's happened they've had yeah. really good race tracks so but it was a result of a, removing all the top of the surface and starting a bit of that again, but also putting the drainage in underneath. Mm, yeah, yeah. One of the things I'm really interested in, and I sat in a two, maybe two and a half hour talk uh, when they initiated the Optus Stadium and they started talking about the turf. You were heavily involved in the writing of that spec for the state government at the time for Optus Stadium. So can you tell, talk us a bit uh, through through that? Because that, that is a, a lot of interest to many of our listeners, no doubt. Yes, I was lucky to probably be in the right place at the right time with the Wacker and um, obviously Wacker was a stakeholder of the new stadium or going mm. to be at the time. We're probably going back to 2010, yeah. somewhere it was a fair while. So I was lucky enough that the CEO at the time, Graham Wood, was like, I want you to kind of to go to all the stakeholder meetings and represent the Wacker. So it wasn't just about the turf, it was about... Um, the design of the bowl mm-hmm. seating you know so do you have if you're going down Nile do you have A to K on on your left and okay. L to Z on your right or is it better just to have the whole yep. which is the best for crowd movements and they get experts in and the, it's really interesting so as a learning perspective it it was really valuable for me some of the people that sat on those committees um, were for all around the world and you know, ran Super Bowls and FA Cups and, and were really sharp about how to design stadiums and for crowd enjoyment and crowd movement, um, facilities like food and beverage and toilets and mm. um, not even being away from the action. So even if you go to the toilet, there's a screen there so you can keep, you're not missing any of the action. Yeah. Um, and then obviously my expertise was around the, the playing surface side. So... Um, even though the government wanted to, um, the three consortiums that um, bid for the rights to build, um, they wanted them to have their natural input and flair and into the design. And we still had to have some broad parameters around what were necessities around the stadium as as far as from a playing surface. So, yeah, I wrote uh, the tender specifications for that. So I had about 50-odd pages of mm. documentation around um, pretty structured in the sports industry around particle size, drainage requirements, um, sprinkler design, etc., cricket mm. portable wickets. And um, luckily enough, once they came in, I'd just left the whacker. And so I was employed by the government full time to do the, um, the resu- uh, review of all the three consortium bids that had come in. And, and my brief was specifically around the playing surface, the portal wickets, the shade 
um, impacts from the stands yep. and the wind movement through the bowl, through the tunnels and the vomitories, mm-hmm. I suppose. And, yeah, once again, really exciting um, to be able to do that, to be involved in, um, well, once in a, a lifetime mm. opportunity that you know, Perth hasn't had a new stadium, basically, yeah. for, well, yeah, for a long time. So to be involved in that and the process around and to be reviewing and then once the build started to make sure that the build was meeting the specifications, any modifications were going to be in the best interest of the playing surface was was really exciting. And and once again, even though I was on the government side working and being in meetings with probably world-leading um, architects, engineers, um, people that had been around stadium builds and design most of their life, it was truly good it was challenging me around my thought process and will this work, what's their flaws? So I was actually trying to make sure the government got the best yeah. um, they had. And, you know, the surfaces had some hardness issues um, for football or perceived hardness issues. But apart from that, you know, most new stadiums have some form of issue. But, you know, it's been an outstanding success and I think anyone that's been to the new stadium... Um, you know, just is blown away by mm. how good it is as a venue and how it can hold an event and and the atmosphere it creates and how close you are to the action and yeah, you know, that's obviously with architects and and engineering designs. But um, you know, it was a difficult build because the the land that was building on was was not unstable, but it's it's old, yeah, basically riverbed or river um, floodplain and you know, so to build it has been. Um, just an architectural marvel, yeah. really, what yeah. they can do these days and how they had to, all the pre-prep work around um, the drainage and all that. Mm. So it was, yeah. Yeah. I seem to remember there was also a, a, motor, a motocross event there not, not that long ago. And the day after or two days later, maybe even five days, we had a football match there. And it was, you couldn't tell that, you know, motorbikes had been, obviously there was preparation in in, in, in assisting that this, the turf wasn't contaminated, but you still couldn't tell even from a compaction point of view that, you know, motocross bikes had been running across the, the surface only a few days prior. So it really is a, a glowing endorsement of the, of the work that everyone put in there. Yeah, absolutely. Events are... <laughs> um, I was at the Wacker when we used to have concerts there, so... I th- I think the last concert we had was in excess simple minds and that was on a saturday night and the stage was over the block a bit and there's everyone on the outfield and in the stands and then the following saturday or friday i think we had a one day against sri lanka which was adam gilchrist's last mm. odi for australia in, in at the wacker so the stage i think was fully pulled down on the Tuesday. It gave us three days to basically turn it around to a cricket ODI. Yeah. So, yeah, it does challenge you. It's all around how you manage the wear and, and what your foundation is, so you're protecting the grass underneath. So it's really mm. – it's a, it's an industry in itself, having all the, the boards and the, you know, the protection flooring. Yeah, yeah. Speaking about protecting um, surfaces, one, one I think one of the biggest challenges that I see as a, as a parent – of, of children that play sports is local grassroots sport. I mean, the, the level that we're seeing, the demand on grounds now, and, you know, with the uptake of more kids doing 
different sports. We're seeing grounds being used for multiple purposes. I mean, what, what are some of the practices that the local councils or even yourselves as contractors can do in... in I know the Shire have rules such as feed on ground or a term that they use as feed on ground, but how can how can like contractors in the Shire f- f- sort of turn the ground around in, in a short period of time so that we can accommodate all these children playing sports these days? Yes, well, it's one of the one of the issues, and it doesn't matter where you're from in in Australia because density living is only going to go one way, and that's upwards. So mm. um, you certainly see it along the western suburbs, probably more so, where there's, you know, even if you had a big block, it's now three or four townhouses or little smaller blocks with a house on it. And so that's putting pressure on um, ground resources. And once again, it's it's one of the things we do a lot of work with local government, with Turf Care WA, where I'm at now. Um, and we're heavily involved in um, working with local government around putting in specific programs to manage where um, local governments had a lot of um, time where they've just had wear and just go oh, we'll just replace the goal mouse and we'll just mm. re-turf but that turf never really establishes or has a time to establish and the root systems just rip out at the start of the next winter especially so for us it's around how are we managing programs and when are we um, putting in inputs, whether it be aeration to relieve the soil, get the roots down. Um, we're doing a lot of work at the moment with wetting agents, obviously is a big one, um, yep. local governments um, with water restrictions and bore licensing and bore water restriction. Um, they've come on board with the use of really good wetting agents to limit their um, water usage, but also to store nutrient in the soil and down in the root zone where it's really Mm. good rather than in the canopy so if we get water from the canopy down the root zone and try and get the roots to drag down and follow that water and that's the key is doesn't matter if you're growing a crop or or sports turf it's the anchoring of the plant and the ability of the plant to capture a lot of water volume and nutrient at different depths so that if you have a soil where you water and it goes through past the root zone where you just can't access that water so it's Mm. we do a lot of aeration work we also do um, a lot of spraying of primo which is a growth regulator so um, just slow cell elongation through the you know slowing the gibberellic acid content in the in the plant Um, and that allows not so much upright growth but um, horizontal growth for density so once again it gets a harder wearing or better wearing turf canopy i suppose and so yeah we're also looking at controlled release fertilizers that don't volatilize or leach through the soil profile as well so six to eight weeks of really good slow release or controlled release uptake in the Mm. plant so we're looking at um a model for our business where we've we're looking at a more premium product but being able to use it in a council environment where um, funds are limited yep so how do we bring all those together and we've done a lot of work in that and that's one of the things we've prided ourselves on is we we're not going to the cheaper product we're still trying to get that into a a, a premium product in a council but rather than re-turfing you're putting your money into the nutrition and into hmm. 
you know, the aeration and the, you know, the things that really create a sustainable... Yeah. And that's no different to agriculture. The sustainability of is, mm. is what it's all about nowadays because we're really in an arid climate. Mm. Yeah, no, no, definitely. Well, Cam, tell us a bit these days. You, you just mentioned them there, Turf Care WA. I mean, how wide and varying is your work these days? I mean, you used to focus on one particular ground or, or a race course, but these days you, you're the sort of myriad of work that you guys would be doing would be pretty vast and wide. Can you tell us a bit about the sort of work that Turf Care WA does? Yes, yeah, so we've expanded exponentially, I suppose, in the last four years. Um, probably had fourfold growth, so which is sounds really good, but it's, it's really created um, an environment of where we've had to be really disciplined in... Um, how we manage cash flow on that because mm. of our expansion has been so rapid but it, we've gone I suppose it started off as mainly tennis clubs and that um, when the business owner Michael's father ran it through to an expansion into oval renovations then um, into spraying for in the winter time to give the a, really a 12 month cycle of work for all the employees rather than a boom and bust scenario of a lot of work in winter but nothing oh, sorry a lot of work in summer not in winter yeah um, and then I suppose three years ago we looked at facilities and can we manage facilities um, we're doing it a bit with tennis clubs so we, we were lucky enough to win some golf course contracts the University of Western Australia um, some cricket grounds some waffle football grounds and so we just expanded mm. um, on the back of I think recruiting some some really good turf managers and um, having a really good profile of trying to do things the right way so um, so we look after 15 local governments as far as tenders for spraying renovation mowing works all the um, turf maintenance side of it we've got contracts as I said for total staff and machinery at golf courses and um, university campuses and and tennis clubs and cricket grounds and we also do um, some consultancy work some construction work around um, whether it be golf greens bowling greens um, some ovals yeah so yeah we're really diverse and that's it's really good in a way but it's really hard to manage staff who could be anywhere from Yanship to Mandra at yeah. any one time. We also do over 200 schools for the Department of Education, mowing and maintaining those. So, mm. yeah, we've, we've grown really big, but it's, it's for me, <laughs> I'm, I'm in the office as general manager nowadays yep. and, and really all-encompassing around basically every aspect of the business, you know, from st- strategic planning through to HR risk, you know, safety, um programming yeah um, operational so yeah that's but yeah it's it is different it's um it's it's certainly slightly different it's probably the role involved you know where i was at the race course i went from general manager of tracks to general manager of race course and facilities i did take on all that facility yeah okay yeah i had a couple of hundred people under me um on race day there so i kind of expanded those um, general manager's mm. roles from a turf manager so yeah. this was just another natural progression of um, of a role of running basically a business mm. in conjunction with the owner it certainly sounds very exciting and one of the things that i saw on the website actually I don't know, forgive me if i pronounce this wrong but the kekex 
method. Um, so it's a basically a steam, steam and boiling water to treat weeds. Um, can you talk us through a bit of this? Because I'm seeing, I think a lot of the local government uh, authorities these days are asking for alternate ways into the removal of weeds. So can you talk us through this this machine that I saw on your website there? Yes, it's our new machine. So we've, we've just taken control of, of two. One's a walk behind and basically does small areas. So yep. And one's a, a ride-on machine. And yeah, the, the main point of difference, I suppose, with the steam weed controllers is this is more based on boiling water. Mm-hmm. Um, the steam is there, but it's really as a... It's a an effect of the boiling water coming off the vaporization of that so um, and the the methodology is slightly different to steam steam would work and basically just burn i suppose the the canopy of the plant whereas the boiling water and it's under a the machine's got a big cover on it so it basically penetrates in and burns the roots as well mm-hmm. with the water so it's um, we saw it as a really um, niche market but it as a market that was only going to increase so we we went out on a bit of a limb doing it in the fact that a lot of local government aren't really sold on it but they know that it's coming because the glyphosate debate and um being a farmer i'm not going to get into that because i understand the <laughs> glyphosate um but for us as local government um contractors and the amount of debate around Glyphosate, but the amount of debate around any chemical, and we we spray, whether it be wetting agent, foliar, fertilizer, or um, chemical, over four thousand hectares in around Perth mm. a year. So we're yep. constantly spraying. Now our spray operators have noticed the amount of scrutiny, even sometimes abuse that residents give, filming of this. Um, yeah, you know, and the compliance we have to do around spraying just two folds each year around yep. report writing and signage and and so there's a lot of nervousness through I suppose lack of information for the you know public mm. um, as much as anything but they see chemical as the, as the enemy most people have probably got a bottle of Roundup in their shed and they still mm. kind of don't understand yeah. our role but for us to then to go into the Kekex um, we think it's not going to be for every area of council but where you've got high density or shopping centres or, you know, for example, we're doing some at the city of Perth where they just cannot get in and do spraying unless it's from, we do some of their spraying, it's the middle of the night, so from 11pm till 2am scenario. Mm. But then to get staff to do that and to, to have staff that feel safe in those yep. times as well, whereas we can do steam or boiling water treatment in the middle of the day because people can walk straight past and there's mm. no danger to the pedestrian. So from a, a an environmental message for these councils as well, they're seeing it as actual positive for the mm. for their ratepayers that they're actually doing it. So that was the why we went into it and we see it as an opportunity and we have to evolve our business. Yeah. So it's we're not against chemicals and we spray as much as you know, anyone in the Perth metro area. We do it really safely. We've got shrouded booms and specific turf sprayers that low impact and, and cover the ground pretty quickly. So we're doing that in a safe method, but we also see this as another niche market that just gives the client something that mm. um, that they can say 5% of our constituentry or 10% is done through 
an environmentally friendly hmm. process. Yeah. Well, that leads me kind of to my next question is, I mean, in, in we've looking into a crystal ball, I guess, and talking about weed control, like how do you see the foreseeable future? Are we looking at robotic spraying or with organic material or are we just going to make adjustments to our the practices that we're currently doing now? It's, it's one of the probably the, the million-dollar question, I guess, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's, it's, I think robotic or GPS-guided is certainly come more in agriculture than, mm. than the turf. It's really hard for us to be, you know, and there's a lot of robotic mowing equipment out there at the moment, so it's, it's been out there for a while. But when you're in a public place, you still have to have someone there making sure it's doing what it's supposed to do anyway, so you're not yeah. really saving on a labour component. Um, but certainly for us, GPS tracking and uh, monitoring is really crucial in our spray records because obviously the local government want to know what you've put on, how you've put on, that you haven't missed any, that it hasn't drifted in. So for us, GPS is a big one, and that's only any bigger around how we how we track our spraying movements and uh, make sure they're done um, with zero, almost zero overlap or as much as we can to mm. make sure we're not going over areas twice. Um, how do I see it? There are organic um, chemicals that are testing the market at the moment but are not necessarily making huge inroads. So, oh, look, I think there will always be development towards the environmental because hmm. the market's there and with the density of population, there's only going to get more and more pressure on because councillors, like it or not, they're voted in by ratepayers and at some stage they have to bow to the man to those ratepayers and mm. the ratepayers are rightly or wrongly saying that we don't want chemicals in our backyard. Yeah, yeah. Now that's certainly the message that we hear as well out there and uh, it's an interesting point you make that the the, the commentary back from you know people out there in the wider world is that it is a negative one, isn't it? Like, I do see, we hear a lot of operators, they have people taking photos of them, they have people writing down regos of tractors and whatnot and uh, yeah, it is a growing issue out there, but I think if we can all be on the front foot, I guess, as, a, as an industry, um, look to be, you know, taking on some new technology and, and, you know, answering some of these, not the critics, but, you know, just um, being transparent, I guess. Yeah, and, and the turf industry does a lot of research in um, some of our chemicals we spray are basically non-scheduled, you know, and, but if you said, gave someone a bottle and said, this is what we're spraying, they they just run for the hills but mm. they have no idea of what they're picking up um how it affects them you know a lot of them go oh my dog's been sick for two days since he walked on your park the day after you sprayed it and it's like we watered it in straight after you know there's nothing mm. there it's it's an education thing certainly um maybe in, in broad acre agricultures but certainly in turf in high density areas one of the things we're falling short on i believe is educating people around the chemistry of the of chemicals and how good it is nowadays because it's been developed for this market yep and we tank mix a lot where we're um, doing a lot of pre-emergence which are watered in so they give six months pre-emergent control and once it's watered in straight after we spray there's no um, effect you know to the um, public but people just are unaware of that mm. so they kind of and we even um cop a lot of angst as soon as they see a boom spray we could be putting out wedding agent mm. um and they go what 
and we're saying we're putting out this wedding agent they go what's that yeah, yeah and i think we can do that a lot better as an industry is yeah. actually get on the front foot and go this is how good we are doing things because everyone's mm. doing a lot of good things in the certainly the turf management and it doesn't matter if you're syngenta bay or who you which where you buy your chemicals from there's a lot of research and that would be for ag as well around mm. how, how can we maximize efficiency of product and and incorporation into the soil or you know into the plant if it's a, a controlling fungicide etc yeah yeah no most certainly cam i certainly agree with you there hey cam look look thanks for joining us on the podcast today turf care wa where can we find you uh, so Turf Care WA are based in Malaga, but uh, we're on, on the website, turfkwa.com.au. Yep. Um, and we we do commercial. We don't go into so much the home lawn, although we mm. are looking at having an arm positively green, which is providing commercial-grade products and, and um, I suppose, the premium range of fertiliser to... Um, into home lawns because we do get a lot of questions from home lawn owners and there's groups like lawn addicts and lawn porn and all that that guys post on social yeah. media all their lawns how proud they are of striping them up for the weekend and having their barbie on them and so we've thought about and are about to release a lot of our premium range fertilizers that we use and we're just going to have them package for the domestic market because that's the question we continue to ask where can i get this mm. chemical or fertilizer or wedding agent from so yeah. yeah so stay tuned um head to the website and we'll um we'll have some of that for the residential but yeah so we we go throughout the state uh we do a little bit of um country shires um work but patrolling in metro mm. yeah no it's it's quite exciting you have a good following as well so i can see i can appreciate that products like that will work for you guys because i, I think that the, the brand name and your brand name as well uh has a, has a strong following so i can certainly see the benefit in that so no congratulations and uh that's really uh, good and uh, look once again thanks for joining us on the podcast uh, we had a blast no, it's been very good to have a chat i probably talked too much but thanks no, it's for all good me. we like we like the long episodes as well it's always good to have one no thanks thanks cam thanks for joining us pleasure